Glad y'all are here today. If you guys have your Bible, let's go to Judges. Uh, we're going to be there. We're going to kind of look at all of it, but it's chapter 8 in the story. You can be there. And of course, it's the seventh book in your Bible. comes right after Joshua, and that is purposeful. But so glad that you're here. Um, and we've got a lot to jump into this morning. Before the Civil War, about 30 years before the Civil War, Sarah Maps Douglas was an African-American Quaker, very deeply devoted follower of Jesus. In 1831, she joined the Northern's abolitionist movement, and she became nationally known from her writings, from her ability to speak truth into the power that was at be in the South, especially at the time. But Sarah Maps Douglas was also known for her ability to take scripture and call people to Jesus through the gospel locally in her context. She probably was best known by ending, help end the segregation that was not just existing in the South, but was existing in her church family. She still went to church in 1831 every Sunday, and there was rows for white people, and there were rows for colored people. In response to this, there's a writing that still exists from Sarah Maps Douglas that she wrote to a newspaper editor who had written about this section of, even in the North at the time, of our American history where some of the most segregated parts of the country were still in church services. And in this newspaper editorial, here's what she wrote. I want to read you these words. She says, I, sir, would gladly sit among the most humblest of my despised black race, but I have not obliged. I've not obliged for conscience sake, so I sit with white Christians, and often I'm met with looks of scorn, and I've heard the whispered remark behind me that says the pew, that pew is for white people, and that pew is for people of color. And as the tears have gathered in my eye, a prayer has ascended from my heart to God. And I have prayed that God in his own time would take away the reproach that I bear. And oh, most dearly do I believe that he will. This belief alone, this belief alone is sufficient for me to keep in the path of duty of following Jesus. Sarah Maps Douglas was able to live till 1865 and see her African-American brothers and sisters emancipated. But she is a true Christian hero. Maximilian Kolbe was a priest in Poland during the Nazi occupation prior to and leading up to World War II as he saw Jewish people be Scorned, then persecuted, then killed. He moved to open up the monastery that he worked in and he housed thousands of Jewish people in Poland. He worked kind of what we would know as an underground railroad to lead many hundreds, if not thousands, to safety. Eventually, word got out about Maximilian and he was arrested by the German Gestapo. And he was one of the few Christian members in Auschwitz. He was given the prison number 16670 tattooed on his arm. One morning while in Auschwitz, 
a fellow prisoner escaped and got away. And in the concentration camp, the response to that, the particular response was for the Nazi soldiers to choose 10 prisoners at random and execute them for reprisal for one escaping. As they lined up, a man named Frank, or Frank probably more accurately, was chosen, and he began to just cry out in desperation. I will never see my wife. I will never see my children again. He was desperate. And as Maximilian Kolb heard his cries, he stepped forward out of the barracks and said, I will die in that man's place. The soldiers granted his request, and they marched him and nine other prisoners out to meet their death. Along the way, Maximilian Colby led the other prisoners forward in song and in prayer to God. His request was granted. He was shot and placed in a shallow grave in Auschwitz on August 14th, 1941. An incredible footnote to Maximilian Colby's story is not only that he was heroic as a Christian in that moment, but that Colby also had spent his younger years in Japan. He founded a monastery in the city of Nagasaki, and after the U.S. dropped the atomic bomb, his monastery that he helped build and fund was one of the only buildings that lasted through the blast. In fact, there's still a statue of Maximilian Kolb that lasted to the blast that's still in Nagasaki today. Maximilian Colby, as Sarah Maps Douglas, is a Christian hero. Now, I love a good hero story, and you do too. Hero stories inspire us. They ignite our imagination for what is possible. They move us. When you see and know a good hero or you hear of a good hero, it causes us to want to reach further and higher into our faith. And I believe we need better hero stories in Christianity. Heroes that teach us how to follow Jesus, how to dispense kindness and compassion. And ultimately what they teach us, these heroes teach us how to live with ultimate allegiance to the king. But on the screen is that big word, judges. And I hate to disappoint anybody, but this week's reading, chapter 8 of the story in the seventh book of the Bible, Judges, is not a collection of heroes. You may have read it that way, but that's really not the author's intent. Judges is not offering 12 tales of moral victors. Instead, it's telling us a story of who not to be like and what not to do. Samson, to put him in modern terms, would not, would not and should not have a Marvel movie named after him. He is not a Jewish Superman or Batman. I know that's not Marvel, but he's fact-checking me on that. But Samson is not in the Bible for us to aspire to be like. And so for us, when we open up the book of Judges, we shouldn't see Samson as this kid's book does. What we should actually see him as is someone who breaks bad. This book of Judges, as you will see here in a moment, is not offering aspirations for us. Yes, there are bright moments. There are moments where you go, that was a, that was a moment of faith. But this book is really offering us a reflection 
on what happens to the people who are in covenant relationship with God when they lose sight of that covenant. The author's original intent is one not of heroic vignettes, but it is one that many scholars call tragic literature. It's much more like a Shakespearean tragedy, Romeo and Juliet, that we're probably familiar with than it is like a comic book movie of today where we say, look at that hero. And if you'll hang with me for just a moment, we'll see how Judges breaks bad as we go through a quick 10,000 foot view and take a snapshot of this book. Because by seeing the structure, you'll see what God is doing with this and what the author intends. So here's how it begins. Judges kicks off with a prologue, chapter one, two through five. It is a narration of Israel's failure to drive out the Canaanites. What Joshua started, it stopped by the time book of Judges started. In two, three through six, the narration continues on Israel's failure. Here are those words in verses eight through 13, which give us such a great summation. Says Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gosh. After that, the whole generation that had gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger and forsook him and served Baal and the Asterisks. So that's a good summation of what the prologue of Judges is trying to tell us. Then after that prologue, what we get is this story of 12 judges, six short stories, six long. There's some, there's some structure that's going on there. We get a story of Ehud, who's a slick assassin, who's good with his left hand. I always loved him because I was left-handed as a kid. All right? Then you get a story of a judge named Deborah, Barak, and Jael, another woman. A story of two women who follow God, and it seems that nobody else does. In chapters 6 through 9, you get a story of Gideon, who's a coward, who overcomes by faith in the short term, but ends up, and his story ends up with him leading the nation further into idolatry, and then his son starting a civil war. In chapter 10 through 12, you get a story that I wanted to really preach on today, but I could not get myself to do it, of Jephthah. Jephthah is a judge who is basically a hilltop gangster who's so unfamiliar with the God of Israel that he believes that sacrificing his own daughter would please God. He doesn't know the story of Abraham. He doesn't know Genesis 22. Then, of course, we get the most famous of them all, a strong, long-haired dude named Samson. Samson, 13 through 16, is a violent, sex-crazed, strong man with no regard to God's covenant. His parents set him up and say, we're going to make a Nazarite vow. And the next few moments of Samson's life is him breaking Nazarite vow. You're not to touch dead things. What's he do? He kills a lion. There's honey in it. He not only touches the dead thing, he eats out of the dead thing. Then he takes the dead thing's honey and takes it to other people and feeds them. 
He breaks covenant over and over and over. And then finally in 1721, the story wraps up of the people hitting rock bottom. It ends up with a story about the tribe of Dan building their own pagan temple and then all kinds of other dirty, nasty things where there's a cause of intertribal warring again. It's breaking bad. It's a strange story and you might be depressed by hearing this or disturbed. You might totally disagree with me today and that's okay. But I want you to notice this. If you were paying attention, what is happening is the stories don't just stay the same. Yes, there is a cycle, but the cycle is a downward spiral. It's the downward spiral of narrative tragedy. Tragedy, the slow fade away from God. Judges is telling the story of what happens when faithfulness is taken for granted and people forget. A pattern emerges and with each repeat of the pattern, the cycle only gets worse. It magnifies, it deepens. Again, yes, there's bright spots. Gideon is faithful. Deborah seems to be the highlight of the whole book in my mind. She's just and courageous. She's a strong leader. But the overall message is this is the people slowly fading into forsaking God. And so as any fifth, sixth grader or any middle schooler when I was in youth ministry the ones that I really loved, if I taught a book like Judges, I would always have one or two come up to me and go, well, then why is that in the Bible? That's the question we should be asking. And I loved when kids would ask that question. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Why would God include an entire book about the people not being heroic, but being anti-heroes? What does God want us to know? Well, there's some textual reasons at the outset. If you guys are nerdy like me and want some Bible reasons, here's some Bible textual reasons. Judges is a juxtaposition to the book that precedes it. It stands in opposition to Joshua. Joshua is the story of here's what happens when a leader is faithful and courageous and trusting. Judges is a story of what happens when the people do the opposite. But more than just textual reasons, there is a whole lot more. And it's hard for us to stomach the whole lot more because in our Western world, probably if I ask for a show of hands, probably all of us, there's not very many people that like movies that don't end with a good bow. We like stories to wrap up and come to a conclusion. We like stories to say happily ever after, right? We love 30-minute vignettes, right? We love the full houses where a family can be in crisis and 22 minutes later, everything's worked out. That's our Western mindset. But in the East, tragic narratives like Judges had a place. This is much more like the trilogy of The Godfather in the 70s or Breaking Bad, the TV show, which I am not condoning watching this morning. Please do not, all right? They're tales, judges as a tale that gives us a close look at what happens and the wisdom that we can acquire when we see how ruin really takes place. Judges shows us the wisdom that ruin does not happen from one bad choice. And you know that. 
Ruin happens from small moral compromises that lead to greater and greater consequences. You guys know this, right? No one starts out planning to ruin their life. No one writes in their yearbook, hey, stay the same. I'm not going to. I'm about to ruin my life. (laughs) Right? Stay cool, class of 94, right? (laughs) Nobody says that. We don't plan on doing that. We're all a mixture of complex choices and influence. No one decides one day that, you know what I'd like to be? I mean, I'd like to be an addict. But we all have bad habits, don't we? We all repeat the same sins that we've repeated maybe since we were 10, 11, 12. I've never met with a young Christian couple who has bright and starry eyes about their future and they're doing, they're doing the marriage, uh, the premarital counseling and I've never met with one that said, you know, we're going we're gonna to really work hard to make this thing not work out. But yet half of us in Christianity end in divorce. Half of the marriages that we know of. And none of us here today in our wider communities and even in the church have ever set out. We didn't come out of the baptistry and say, you know what I'm going to be? I'm going to be apathetic and angry about Christianity the rest of my life. <laughs> Right? But we are, here we are. Many of us find ourselves in those places. This is why Judges is here. It can be such a great reminder for us. When we read it, it can be an alarm clock for us to go, man, how have I also gone to sleep? It can awaken our souls from the slow fade we can all experience away from the Lord. As the Israelites got into a pattern of disobedience, so do we, right church? It's not ha ha funny Israelites, I can't believe you did that. It's a mirror that you probably picked up on and you go, oh, I can do that too. See what we do and what we see in the book of Judges is this pattern, the wash, the rinse, the repeat. The Israelites do evil in the sight of the Lord. They worship other gods. God hands them over to their enemies. That's God's way. You might say, well, why does God do that? Really what's happening there is God's saying, you want to go that way? If you want to stick your finger in a light socket, I've told you no a lot. Go ahead and do it, right? Parents, you ever done that, right? My mom one time told me I was riding underneath a grocery buggy and she said, don't stick your finger under that wheel. It will smash your finger. And I said, it won't smash my finger. That hurt worse than I, that was one of some of the worst pain in my life. My mom was like, I was crying and bawling as a five-year-old, a six-year-old. And she goes, told you not to do it, right? Good parenting, right? We all do that. This is what God does is they get into the pattern. He hands them over to their enemies. Then the people cry out. And then God in his grace raises up a judge. There's peace for a time. And then what happens? Wash, rinse, repeat. Six times this happens in the book of Judges. And it culminates with these final words. And this is where we get to really start to see what Judges is about. And we get to start applying this to our lives. And the Judges finishes in Judges 21, 25 out of the New Living Translation. It says, in those days, Israel had no king and the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. I find it so interesting that 
Again, this book as it's juxtapositioned next to Joshua. Some of the closing words of Joshua is Joshua 24, 15. The words of Joshua where he says, as for me and my house, you guys remember the rest of it? We will serve the Lord. And Judges finishes, in essence, and I paraphrase, as for me and my house, we'll serve ourselves. There's something textually going on here. And we need this book because it is a book that allows us to say, what am I doing? To ask questions of ourselves like this. Am I just repeating the cycle of my life? Am I just going through the motions today? Did I get up this morning and come to worship and go to Bible class and do the things that I do just because... Am I just washing, rinsing, and repeating in my relationship with God? Judges ask the question of where is your heart? Because a slow fade doesn't happen once or it doesn't happen suddenly. It happens when we get caught in patterns, even good patterns, and we don't realize that we're in those patterns and we think we're staying the same. But there is no such thing as a static relationship with God. You cannot stay the same. You are either growing or you are pulling away. Think about it. You may say, well, that's not me. I've had this great constant relationship with God. I figured him out years ago and we're all the same. That's not the way it works. Think about your own life. Judges is asking us to look deep within ourselves. And I want you to notice a few of the highlights this morning. As you read it, or maybe if you didn't get to read it this week, if you go back and read it, you're going to notice this. I want you to notice that in the book, the blame, if there is blame to go around, the complicity, the guilt, the accusation for who's at fault in the book of Judges falls directly on the people. It's interesting to me that the author never puts the impetus of blame on the other nations around it. And this is important for us to think about this morning. The author goes, you know whose fault all this is? It's the people of God. And that's not just a judge's theme, that's a biblical theme. You never hear Paul going, well, I don't, you guys aren't doing too good in Corinth because of those other Corinthians. He puts the impetus on the Corinthians. Now that's a truth that we can actually be uncomfortable with. It's fairly normal in our world, in the Western church, to do the actual opposite, right? It's rare for the Western church to actually blame themselves. We actually love to blame the world. We have a bad bad habit of blaming those outside the church for the way things are. We judge, we ridicule, Judgment and ridicule of the world and the culture can actually be one of our favorite pastimes. We say things like, well, it used to not be this way. That was the good old days. It's not true. The good old days are now. They always have been. But the consistent message of Scripture is this. This is where we're headed with Judges. And what we want on our hearts today is Judges is telling us you can't control what's out there. 
But as the people were called to and we're called to, you can control your dedication to the Lord. The world church can be a scary place. And I want you to hear me on this. But the scarier thing that's out there is not that the world's going to hell in a handbasket or however you want to say it. The real scary thing for the American church is that the church has stopped being the church. That's the scary thing. It's not that the world is the world. It's that the church has decided to stop being the church. In our love, in our dedication, and in our devotion to the Lord. Now there's a lot of gray areas in life. There is, I'll admit that. But some things are still black and white. There's still some things in the world, and I think Judges is also trying to get us to see that there are still some things in the world that are yes and no, black or white. I think what Judges is trying to get us to see in our relationship with God, it's either real or it's fake. We sang during communion, we place you on the highest place. And judges, I think for me, what's convicting this week as I jumped into this text is it just became very clear is either I have Jesus on the highest place or I don't. There's no in between. It's not that I can have Jesus on the mid place in my life and that be okay. He's either at the highest place or he's not. I don't really have a point to go along with that. I just have a conviction. And it's a question I want us all to wrestle with today. Is it, is God really getting your full attention or not? Is Jesus really getting your allegiance that you gave him in your baptism or not? Because it's either real all of this, or it's fake. Now, if you're not a Christian, I'm not talking to you. There's grace, and there's grace for you all if you are a Christian. But we need to be convicted every once in a while. We need to be reminded that it's either real or it's fake. Who has the highest place in your life? See, the church has stopped being the church because everything in America has equal value. Everything's flat in our culture. This is just as important as this, and I have to miss this because of this, and I have FOMO if I don't have this and all this. Nothing has the highest place in American culture. And if all things have equal value, then your life actually has no value. Something has to have the highest place. I'm almost done, Corey. You can stop looking at your watch. <laughs> Somebody has to have highest place. Charlotte Elliott was born. And nobody really knows if she was born this way or if she was injured at a young age. Not even her family could remember. But her injury that Charlotte Elliott had left her unable to be active. She lived well into adulthood, but as a child and as an adult, 
She couldn't get off her bed or the couch or wherever somebody placed her. She wasn't able to be active and run around as a kid. And as an adult, she wasn't able to have a job. She had her mind and she had her voice and she could use her hands to write, but she could not keep up and she could not do what she always wanted to do. Her brother wrote about her. I don't have her brother's name, but writing about his sister, Charlotte, he said these words. He says about her is when she was 45 years old, he says, her ill health beset her. It seemed to often cause her a peculiar pain of a seeming uselessness. Not only was her pain physical, but in her life, her pain was from her feeling of being useless. The circle around her was full of unresting service ableness for God. Such a time that she lived in, many of us were busy, marked in the year 1834, living in Westfield Lodge, Brighton, England, and we were busy for God, doing all kinds of things. At this particular time, I remember that we were trying to raise money for St. Mary's Hall. It was a young school for girls, and uh, they were going to hold a bazaar, whichever, we still have a bazaar here. I guess they were selling turkey and dressing at this bazaar. That's what we do here, right? right. I had to remember what a bazaar was, and I was like, Canadian still has a bazaar, right? It's not that bazaar, but it's, it's bazaar, right? So Westfield Lodge, where the town was, was all astir that day. Every member of this large circle of their community was occupied and busy morning and night in preparations, trying to raise money except for one exception in town, and that was my dear sister, Charlotte. She was full of eager interest as any of us, but she could not physically be fit and was able to do nothing. The night before the bazaar, she was kept wakeful by distressing thoughts, distressed about her apparent uselessness. And these thoughts passed by a transition easy to imagine into a spiritual conflict, she started to question her life and the reality of her physical life and her spiritual life. And she began to wonder if there was anything better out there. Was there something better that she had than the emotions and the darkness she felt? And could that be overcome by her relationship with God? She thought about those things awake all night, according to her family. And the next day, while everybody was busy at the bazaar, she lay upon her sofa. sofa. The troubles of the night came back to her with such force that she felt like taking her own life. But then at the same time, another force came upon her and it was what she described as a conquering force of the grace of God. So she gathered up in her soul not emotions, but the great knowledge of her salvation. The knowledge of the Lord, of his power, of his promise. And she took a pen to paper that was next to her by her sofa and she sat down in writing. In her own comfort, she decided, I'm going to write the formula of my faith of somebody who's been an invalid my whole life. I'm going to write down what makes life still worth living. And she was able to express the depths of her faith. And she stated to herself the gospel. And this is what she wrote. Just as I am, 
without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. That thou bidst me come to me, to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. She wrote, just as I am. Not just the six verses that we have in the Church of Christ book, but the eight verses that actually include the whole story. Ending each verse with, O Lamb, I come. Charlotte Elliott is a Christian hero. Because she didn't allow the cycle of her circumstance to draw her away from God, but allowed the cycle of God's redeeming grace to realize what she had been given. She probably had no idea that Billy Graham would use that song over and over. I thought Billy Graham wrote it, right? <laughs> She probably had no idea that countless numbers of churches would sing her words and an innumerable number of people to respond to those words to come and give allegiance to Jesus the Lamb in baptism. Isn't that powerful? One more thing and we'll stand and sing. The other thing that happens in the book of Judges is that the people continually turn their back. And we've called that in church for a long time, the cycle of sin. And you've probably been in classes where we talked about that, and it is. But the other perspective on judges is that there is another cycle going on, and the other cycle is the cycle of redemption. That as the people continually turn their back, God continually drew near. Six times they repeat the cycle and six times God goes, I hear your cry just as I did in Exodus chapter three and I'm going to act. And church family, that is an invitation. That is an invitation for us to walk out of our fakeness, of our playing church, of our apathy, of the cycle that we get stuck in of just going through the motions and come back to the Lord. Not because he is drawn away but because as we have drawn away, he has continually drawn near. He is stuck in a cycle. And thanks be to God that he is. Because his cycle is to be the seeking father who's looking for those who are to bring their life to him without one plea, without anything else, just to say, I come to thee, O Lord, O Lamb of God, I come. Let's stand together and let's sing.